Welcome back to the second part of our two-part series on UAPs. In this second segment, Dr. Giordano and I continue our discussion from the perspective of the various scales and levels of biosecurity risks and threats, as well as the biodefense implications. As you're bringing up that international perspective, we have to then look at the, the, the potential biosecurity risks that may be implicit in that. So what would you say are some of the, the biodefense implications uh, incurred? Oh, so let, let's start with, with those things that are, are purely, if you will, mechanical or mm-hmm. uh, artifactual to the, these, these objects themselves. Mm-hmm. What is evident is that their particular patterns of movement are quite different than anything that exists within the known repertoire of what we're able to do at this point. And, and what I mean by that is not that we can't understand it, but we haven't gotten to the point of having broadly viable, therefore replicable and reproducible objects that can move this way. Now, as we mentioned in a, a prior podcast, talking with my colleague, Nico Coles, I mean, there, there are some ideas as to how these things might move. And one is that these things may be functioning at least in part as viable superconductors, which then induce a magnetic induction field that utilize the earth's magnetic fields, gravitational waves to literally ratchet themselves along very, very rapidly. I mean, at at super high speeds and in ways that don't necessarily have all the signatures of other forms of propulsion. In other words, there's not a heat signature. There's not the necessary light signature. There doesn't seem to be any exhaust trail, and as a consequence, the, the actual mechanism by which the things are moving are quite different than, than what we have in our current working repertoire, although we may be able to understand it. We haven't gotten to that point of technological sophistication to build it in those ways that are broadly replicable and therefore diverse and applicable. That's point number one. Mm-hmm. Point number two is if something is capable of moving at those speeds... Well, now we have to begin to explore some of the more theoretical aspects of what that could mean. Is it possible that moving at those speeds and engaging with magnetic fields, not only of the earth, but perhaps engaging with magnetic fields of of space in general, might also provide certain opportunities to exploit the space-time continuum? And this then raises some interesting speculation as to whether or not these might not only be space devices, but also time devices, which then can raise I think another interesting possibility, a speculative possibility, is that from whence and where are they coming? Might it be, for example, that these do represent probes, drones, uh, even drones that are controlled by some form of biological material interacting with a machine system from Mm -hmm. uh, other civilizations, other species, other worlds, other galaxies? Yeah, it's a possibility. Is it also possible, and has there been some discussion, again, very speculatively, that these are not from other species at all, but these represent temporal probes that the human species has developed in our future? And as a consequence, what we're really seeing is evidence of our own capability for retroactive space-time travel of our own design. And the issue there would be, well, wait a minute. If, in fact, the biological material is re- that is recovered represents 
potentially human biological material or some hybrid or chimera of human biological material, what are the implications on a variety of levels? What does that say for now we're able to look into our own future? Mm-hmm. And is that where we're going? And who did this? You know, here too, it may not necessarily be that we, whoever we are, the United States and its allies, mm-hmm. become the forerunners in this technology. And then what does that mean with regard to our vision of our own future? In other words, are we sort of getting a glimpse, a, a, a portend of things to come where we recognize, you know, we're not going to be at the top of the totem pole because mm-hmm. clearly this represents technology that came from some other, quote, culture, nation, whatever, well, albeit human it, it portends a very different future or one that certainly represents the fact that where we stand technologically might not be where we think we're going to stand. And what mm-hmm. does that then mean? The other is that it, it could represent, again, some type of space-time phenomenon that is not necessarily of, of Earth or terrestrial origin. And here, too, the question is, well, what does that material represent? Is it human-like? Is it completely non-human? And what does this then mean? And, of course, the implication there is larger. Now we're talking about ontological and axiological issues that are profoundly philosophical. We are not alone in the universe. And then what does this mean? And there's a couple of different ways that could go. I mean, one is that it does have profound psychological, sociological, and even spiritual and theological implications that I think might be resonant. But the other is, could this then be leveraged in certain ways that brings humanity together to recognize, wait a minute, you know, not necessarily that this is the stuff of fiction where we're now being quote invaded by aliens but rather Mm -hmm. that we are one among many which then provides i think a sobering view of what might be our place in the universe but now let's break break for a moment which goes back to your earlier point it may also be that there are certain aspects of whatever this material is both the biological material as well as the physical material that may be considered to be risky if not threatening and perhaps explicitly harmful to humanity, in which case that risk, that threat, that harm needs to be very closely guarded, perhaps further explored. But discussion of that risk, dissemination of those findings uh, certainly could be like throwing a match on dry brush with regard to public views, opinion, speculation, and panic. The other issue is, well, what might that portend for what might be the intent behind these probes? And this is where you don't necessarily want to evoke public misperception, miscommunication, panic about the idea of colonization from other worlds, malintent, the fact that these these other species or other biological organisms might be maleficent. Or even if it's not a question of being maleficent, the idea that there might be some process by which whatever these things may deem to be in their best interest, it's not necessarily in our best interest. I mean, look, let's face it. The fact that I'd like to build a a housing development on a particular piece of land doesn't necessarily bode well for the trees or the animals that are living in the trees on the ground or whatever, right? So once again, the intentionality of whatever this may be may have implications for how it's not only perceived, but how it's responded to, which may have particular biosecurity, public health risks. And now there's one additional issue. 
Might it be also that the actual propulsion mechanisms that these are using might be biologically harmful? In other words, they're generating magnetic or other forms of energetic fields that if humans get downrange or exposed to over a period of time within a particular either architecture or geometry might be problematic in ways that we don't yet understand or haven't fully understood because those instances in which that has occurred have not boded well, have not worked out well, or or simply have not sufficiently evolved to the extent we're getting a handle on what these things could do. It's sort of like literally standing behind an exhaust pipe or walking into a propeller. I mean, again, it's it would not be unusual to say that some mechanism of propulsion, if not treated the right way or understood appropriately and sufficiently, might be burdensome, risky, threatening, or harmful to individuals who contact it and interact with it in inappropriate ways. So I think that that provides something of the portfolio of potential burden, risks, threats, and harms that might be entertained in terms of why this information represents a biosecurity, biodefense potential risk or threat, and then what that also means with regard to the nature of the discourse. But see, now that brings us back to the mission of IBR and 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 the focus that we always take. So what would you perceive or perhaps maybe propose, recommend some directions that could be taken on a variety of levels, not only from a government perspective, but management of public perception yeah, as a, well. That, that's a great question. I mean, and, and certainly that was one of the points that, that my colleague Nico Coles discussed with regard to overall health promotions within a, a public mm-hmm. health model that appreciates the biopsychosocial reality of what humans are in their various environments in a variety of different ways. I mean, literally their physical environments, their social environments, their anthropological, even their political environments. So I, I think the issue here is that that the vagary and ambiguity of what is there, now that at least the rock has been lifted up, needs to be resolved to some level. I, I think leaving it hang where now there is building evidence that there's something, quote, there, there, certainly implicates the fact that the government has known that there's something there, there, and now may serve as a prompt for the government to deal with that in some way. I I think denying that there's something there, there at this point, number one, at at very, very least, would be anachronistic and taking us back to the the, the prior discourse. Absolutely. But I think at worst, it's, it's evidence of number one, frank denial, number two, what could be viewed as some form of mildly benevolent parentalism, if not frank paternalism, and number three, and I think probably far more problematic, is that the government in an open society such as we have in the United States would not be perceived as working to protect or in the benefit of the polis, particularly when the polis is demanding some information. Now, the question of whether or not the government is working in that protective aspect in those domains would then also necessitate some level of communication to say why this level of secrecy has been maintained. Not necessarily saying of what's in the box in terms of its specifics, but the fact mm-hmm. that what's in the box might be problematic for the public to know about, to be exposed to, for these reasons. That may be okay. I mean, understand, it may be simply fine to say, look, we've got hold of something that we didn't know what to do with. We didn't know how the public would respond. But now that we've sort of hit the debt wire and the 
the proverbial informational bomb has gone off. Now we need to explain ourselves. Explaining yourself governmentally, institutionally, and organizationally is not the same as 100% transparency of what's in the proverbial box, but only why what's in the box has been maintained at a level of non-transparency to this point and what level of transparency is appropriate given the burdens, risks, threats, and harms that could be evoked. So I think that the next step is one of redefining an appropriate level of transparency communicating transparently in those ways that allows the public to be aware of what the government actually had and has and what the concerns are governmentally, both nationally as well as internationally, that would have precipitated their prior posture, which then dictates at least discourse about what their current and future postures should be. Now, you know... Um, one of the areas that I work is misinformation, disinformation. Right. With what you have just said, my head is now thinking of every way that as that transparency and the management of that transparency is trying, would, would try to be presented. It significant, given the social media, significant opportunity for that either disinformation or misinformation. What are some of the ways that could be anticipated, managed, handled, or do we just hang on for the ride? I think it's a little bit of both. Think at the end of the day, I'm not going to say we're doomed, but we're destined to hang on to the and just go for the ride based upon whatever the government decides it wants to promulgate, right? So mm-hmm. again, at the end of the day, I mean, although you'd like to think you're sitting in the driver's seat, you're sitting in the saddle and you may or may not necessarily have the latitude or capability to control the horse, so to speak. The other is that there is the potential for considerable considerable informational direction. But how do we direct this information, which then speaks to three, three things. Number one, what is the level of the information? What type of information? Number two, what is the intent? not only of, of the information, but what is the intent of what that thing is? What, what, what is it? What, what do we have? And then what is the intent of the way the information could be used and or should be used? And then coming from that, the idea is then, well, what are the mechanisms by which that should then be engaged? Right? Yeah, we absolutely, there absolutely could be concerns about misinformation. And that misinformation, again, could be misinformation that's promulgated with what is perceived to be national security and defense interests. In other words, we don't want to let this information out because we fear that there may be those who exist within our public, and certainly given the ubiquity of informational exchange and its relative sort of openness, the, 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 the porousness of information, anything that we put out would certainly be available to our international peer competitors who in some cases may be not only competitor, but adversarial. And then the, the, the question then becomes, what is the nature of that information that we then provide either explicitly or implicitly to competitors and adversaries? And what does that then mean? So it's a larger picture that then engages sort of different dimensions of systemic benefit and risk, right? Where we now are looking at the system, not only in terms of sort of the national idiosyncratic risk, what is the risk and, and benefits for us 
the United States and its allies, but what are the benefits and risks within the larger system of multidimensional, multipolitical, multinational engagements as relates to science and technology postures relevant to military and national security intelligence and defense operations and, and exercises? And then the, the other question is, all right, well, what, what do we want the public to know? Who is that public? And how is that information in some way important to public response, public posture, public reaction, public psychology, and public behavior? Which then I think is important to at least appreciate because it then prompts further insight and hopefully granular insight to what are those processes within the government and its related agencies. Again, let's take a whole of nation approach, not just the government, but literally the entire national infrastructure and its functions that inform the public. And what is the intent of that information? What are the goals? What are the aims? What are the agendas? And there's always agenda. And what are the desired responses? And that's a larger picture. I will be honest, you've got me thinking in so many directions, but um, I think you've given us all food for thought. This is amazing. Well, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know that I answer any question as well as raising others, but I think that's, that's, the, that's the goal here. The, the goal is to keep asking questions to the point where the questions that are generated prompt particular answers that are necessary answers they may not be sufficient answers, but there may be a point whereby we get to some level of satisfactory sufficiency, which is called satisficing. And I think that's an iterative process of exchange, of back and forth, of some kind of like mm-hmm. reflective and dynamic equilibrium between those who possess the information and those who are requesting the information. So it would be interesting to see how it plays out. I do think that there are concerns here, and certainly at very, very least considerations for national biosecurity and biodefense based upon the fact that these may represent novel entities that in some cases are anomalous, that they don't exist within the norm of those things that we've experienced to date or that we've made available and aware of, been, been aware of to date. And then the question is, well, uh, like anything else, what are the safety parameters that need to be considered? And those safety parameters, again, are multidimensional. They certainly are physical, therefore biological. They certainly exist within the social range with regard to public reaction. In that social range, also, I think there are certain economics and political inferences that need to be considered. And then, of course, the way we respond and engage our social environments is psychological. And then what does that then mean for our overall psychological well-being, stability, and reactivity? So I think folding all of those into some quasi-calculus of what is going to be necessary to formulate the appropriate information and responses based upon the information that is held, and then what that also reveals about governmental transparency, guarded transparency, and what our group has referred to as prudent parentalism in the public interest in a way that is communicated and appreciated by the public will remain to be seen. Fantastic. This has been amazing. And you've all, as usual, given me food for thought, and I'm sure all of our listeners. Um, I thank you. Uh, this is not the last time I am going to turn the tables on you, but as 
always it is um, thought-provoking. And um, I know for those of us who are in the biosecurity realm, it's it truly, truly given us food for thought. Again, thank you very much, yeah, our you. dear Dr. Giordano. Thanks. And uh, we'll see you the next time on this side of the mic. Always a pleasure. And thanks also to our listeners. And uh, do stay tuned for our podcast, Clear and Present, that seeks to present to those audiences who are listening those issues that are at the forefront of the intersection of national security, intelligence, global capability, science and technology, and biodefense, biosecurity research. Well said. Take care. Thanks to our guests and to you, our audience. Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us again next time for another episode of Clear and Present.